God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This truth given to us in the Hebrew Scriptures is repeated in the New Testament by almost every New Testament author. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, Peter. They all find a way of either directly quoting that truth from the Old Testament or giving illustration of it with parallel truths like the first shall be last, the last shall be first. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's a great privilege to preach this word from God once again here. Um, I've been so thankful for this calling God has given me to be one of your assistant pastors. And this is actually the third sermon I've preached in this calendar year. I just made it under the wire to have a trilogy in the year 2017. And it's, it's wonderful the way the, the preaching ministry of this church If you're a visitor today, I I certainly hope you'll come back and get to meet and interact with our senior pastor, Preston Graham, and uh, all of us that know him, of course, are just so glad that he and Lisa are getting to enjoy their new grandchild for the first time. Uh, Now they're grandparents. We can call them, well, what are we going to call them, grandpa, grandma? Um, So uh, as I've gotten the privilege to preach the gospel here um, in this sort of trilogy this year, um, the, the session and, and Preston with his guidance, there's, it's really served to, it's worked well to serve as something of a holistic trilogy. The first assignment I was given was on Missions Sunday. And so the central question that was addressed that day was, what do you need to know about reality right now? Sometimes we might feel like reality is how cold my feet were this morning. I, I got the ice off my car, and it took me another hour and a half for my feet to warm back up because I wore my preaching shoes instead of boots, which is a big mistake. And so the, the, my freezing toes seem to be like the most important aspect of reality for a bit of time for me. Well, you know, we, I, I'm bringing something up, trivial up just to make that point that we know there's these deep central truths to reality that have to control everything. And so the first sermon back in the spring was this reality that Christ is ascended, crucified, resurrected, and ascended. He's on the throne now, anabino, I am ascending, Jesus says, the commissioned work of art that we've got in our church. Anabino, this reality, that controls everything. That was the first sermon. this truth that you need to know about reality right now. Then the second assignment was to preach about what do you need to know about yourself right now, the deepest truth about your own identity. And so the second sermon was on the privilege that God gives us to be his very sons and daughters. The deepest truth you need to know in many ways right now about reality is that Christ is ascended. The deepest truth you need to know about yourself is that God gives you the privilege of being a son or daughter of the king. But now, this morning, we are looking at moving into this new year, moving into life in general. What do you need to know about how to move into your world, into this new year, into your life What should the condition of your heart be in order to move forward with health and strength? And that 
is this condition of humility. This condition of humility. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our sermon passage this morning captures this, both with the manner and lifestyle of John the Baptist, but also with his very calling to be the one to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. But finally, by specific words that really do work as a catchphrase. We can't remember everything all the time. And so God gives us simple summaries of truth. And so the sermon title is one of these summaries of reality, where John says, he, referring to Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. This captures this heart of humility. Here's another thing that I think captures the heart of humility. Um, You can tell me afterwards whether you think this captures the heart of humility, but um, going from the profound to the ridiculous, um, something as far away from authoritative truth as you can possibly imagine the scriptures to now coming to, this is an article in The Onion. The Onion. Some of you are familiar with The Onion, which is this satirical humor magazine. But here's the headline. Man who skipped airport's moving walkway immediately realizes what an arrogant fool he's been. And now here's the article. The grave implications of his vanity now dawning on him, local man Ed Pites realized what an arrogant fool he's been after skipping the moving walkway at Los Angeles International Airport, sources said Thursday. My God, what have I done, said a despairing Pites, realizing that, alas, he must live with the sorrowful consequences of his own hubris and proceed down the carpeted corridor on his own two feet, watching in shame as other travelers with the humility to board the conveyor platform flowed past him with ease. My pride, my accursed pride has brought me to this. Like Icarus and Arachne before me, let my tale serve as a warning to all those who would surrender to the vile temptations of the ego. At press time, redemption lay at hand as the moving walkway was ending with a small gap before the next one began. All right, so from the profound to the ridiculous. But there's that image there of of help being offered. Why not take it? Why not take it? And of course, there's all sorts of, in in the real world, there's all all sorts of legitimate reasons for not taking the offered help of a moving walkway. It might be too crowded. You might need to walk for your health, of course. So this is a pointedly ridiculous example arguing from the lesser to the greater, coming to this place where, but what about this? What about the offer of actual eternal life? What about the offer of actual relationship with the living God of the universe? When that is offered to you and you let it pass you by, that is truly horrible arrogance. And so humility is at the heart of this reality that God has for us about how to position ourselves in our hearts as we move into this world. We're going to look now at this passage in particular, both the First Samuel passage, but especially the John chapter 3 passage. So please, let's pray together, for asking for God's help. O oh Lord, God, great King of the universe, we praise you that you sent Jesus Christ full of grace and truth into this world. 
give us humble hearts to receive this grace and truth and not let it pass us by because of arrogance. And so deepen our faith, deepen our trust, open up new places in our hearts for you to move more deeply and richly, pouring out your spirit so that we would be empowered people, humble people, moving into this new year, moving into every aspect of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Someone that knew quite a bit about arrogance and humility, pride, and then coming to the end of yourself was Martin Luther. And we've talked about Martin Luther many times this year as it was, we're wrapping up 2017, the 500-year recognition of when Luther uh, helped to bring about a great reformation in Christ's church. He knew so much about pride and so much about the need for humility. And listen to how he puts this. He centers it all around one particular issue. Martin Luther said, to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. To be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. Why is that so hard to grasp? There's so many reasons. But for one thing, here's one reason it's hard to grasp is that Luther puts it another way. He says he just says, it's very hard for a man to believe that God is gracious to him. The human heart can't grasp this. What Luther is getting at is this condition of the heart that is opposed to the moving sidewalk. I will not receive help. I can do it myself. And the heart is actually in that condition, in its fallen state. And so it becomes this impossible miracle for the heart to be transformed, to actually receive grace. To be convinced in our hearts that this forgiveness of sins is received by grace alone is the hardest thing, Martin Luther says. And yet, we actually must be convinced of this. We must receive this grace. Looking now at this passage in John 3, in John the Baptist, about whom um, the gospel writer John uh, describes so much, I wonder if you caught this, the, the word must in that concise little phrase that we're saying captures the heart of the Christian life, and it's the sermon title. He must increase, but I must decrease. That the word must was in there. Not just simply, I desire that he increases and I decrease. Not not simply, how healthy it would be if he would increase and I would decrease. But he used the word must. Now, he's using that word must for at least these two profound reasons that the end of all time had now come in Christ. That the looking ahead to the coming of a Messiah was now being fulfilled, and it cannot continue this old age. But it must come to an end, because Christ's work must bring about the change that the time had come. 
God had, had arranged the whole circumstances of all the world that it must end at this point. And now the new covenant of grace must come. And so he uses the word must because it's this word that refers to the fact that all of God's plan is coming to a head right here with the coming of Christ. But he also uses the word must because in relationship to our, our own personal attitude towards Christ. In the same way in which Jesus himself says that no man can serve two masters. There just isn't enough room in the heart. And he uses the examples of either God or mammon, money. You can't, they can't both be your masters at the same time. There's only one person in the saddle of the horse. In that same way, G, John is saying with respect to this coming of Christ, you can't, there can't be two lords that mean the most to you. There aren't two pearls of great price. There must be an increase of Christ and a decrease of self. This word must is in this core phrase, this core truth that, that John gives us here. One of the things that helps me to see is, that, is this simply, it's such a challenge to me and to my heart. I hope you've had a sense. I certainly uh, am, am feeling so deeply grateful um, for God's kindness and grace in this particular calling that we get to live here in New Haven and be among you all. But there's this challenge with that because contentment in and of itself can then lead to complacency. And on the other hand, if you're not content, you're discontent, you're, you're always striving without any peace, that just creates all sorts of anxiety. And so what we have here with the simple word must from John the Baptist is this reminder that the Christian is never satisfied with the status quo. The year 2017 is coming to an end. Do you want to be sitting here one year from today with the exact same quantity of love in your heart that you have right now? Or peace, or joy, or courage, or contentment? Do you want to be sitting here a year from today completely unchanged? Do you want to be sitting here a year from today with our church being exactly as it is in every respect? No new members, no new growth in any way. Of course not. The Christian is, is this wonderful balance, this wonderful tension of deep, deep contentment, but without a striving. Uh, or, or excuse me, it's... it's um, it's, it's contentment and striving at the same time, in a sense. We are neither a content and complacent, but we're content and striving. Nor are we striving with anxiety. We're striving with a contentment. This moving forward, this must aspect, this growth in Christ, it must happen. This is John expressing his heart, expressing the heart of the Christian life. 
Part of the reason that I'm so thankful that God brings this text to us today is my own, my own role as one of your assistant pastors here. You may know, of course, you've got one senior pastor and one uh, associate pastor, Kevin. And you might know, maybe you don't. You actually have six assistant pastors. Do you know this? You have six assistant pastors? And they're all on assignment in various ways. Craig Lukens, one of your assistant pastors, assigned here in particular ways. I'm one of your assistant pastors assigned to be coordinating the church planting. Jeff White, one of your assistant pastors assigned to start a Christian counseling center. And then three church planters. Andrew Holbrook assigned to pastor the congregation in Fairfield. Chip Anderson, assistant pastor here, assigned to pastor the congregation in the Hill. And Mike Brungies, assistant pastor here, assigned to start a new church in Wallingford. And then another assistant pastor soon moving to town, current bishop. You'll have seven assistant pastors soon. And so, but me in my particular role, coordinating the church planting, this past year, 2017, has really seen unprecedented growth with Mission Anabino, our church planting arm. We've planted new churches and with new opportunities given to us um, in, well, it's, it's easy to grow exponentially when you begin with two and then go to four. Like, we doubled! We doubled in size! Um, but it's really these remarkable open doors, a, a, a group that meets monthly that began about seven or eight of us, and then 12, 15, the last meeting was 20 of us, these monthly meetings of church planting pastors in the local area. And so this challenge for me then is, as, we, as Mission Anabana moves forward into the new year, should we be very impressed with ourselves? Should we be looking to increase our influence? Or maybe, maybe this idea of Jesus increasing and our decreasing means that we need to be dismissive of ourselves. That, that real humility means we ought to demean what God has been doing and demean the open doors in front of us. And so I don't quite know how to get at this apart from this picture of, that Scripture gives us of true humility is neither impressed with oneself nor dismissive of the profound things God is doing through you, through your movement, through your church. There is this contentment without strive, without a discontent, but a striving without an anxiety. There is a, a deep gratitude for what God is doing, but an ongoing hunger and thirst that he would do more. And so this whole idea of humility properly understood, really is foundational to the Christian life. If you would turn to the beginning of the bulletin where you see a couple of things for your meditation. Do you see there those quotes from Chrysostom, a 4th century pastor and theologian in the Christian church, and then from Augustine, a 5th century pastor and theologian? And these ideas that humility, first the way Chrysostom puts it, Humility is indeed the root, the mother, the nurse, the foundation, the bond of all virtue. Chrysostom is saying it's impossible for there to be any virtue in its very existence apart from humility. And it's impossible for virtue to grow in any way apart from humility. And then Augustine puts it another way. He uses that idea, um, and probably in all three of my sermons, and, and um, so I'll do it again today, um, I've given away my anxiety and angst that I make some reference or other to the fact that our house in West Hartford still hasn't sold. 
So, uh, but you think of these, the, the three most important aspects of real estate, and it's, what is it? It's location, location, location. So Augustine gets that with this idea of preaching or delivery. What are the three, or what are the three most important aspects of, of um, rhetoric? And it's delivery, delivery, delivery. But he says now, but when we think about the Christian life, what are the three most important aspects? The first is humility. The second is humility. The third is humility. It's always humility. And for your own um, edification or lack thereof, you can read the next little uh, quote I included that maybe something of the Christian church in America in the 20th and 21st century might have lost this idea of the importance of humility as the core of everything. Um, But we'll let that pass for now. Hopefully we'll see from the scriptures itself, from these early Christian saints, just how vital humility is to growth in the gospel in every way. So we're going to look now at this, this aspect of Christian humility as, as deeply as we have time for this morning. But let me make one last preliminary comment before we look at the passage and four aspects in the passage about what humility is, what Christian humility is. I just simply want to distinguish it from um, what, what we would term common grace humility, that in just common civic culture, we ought to champion and be thankful for and be glad for humility. It's as simple as when you go to the the DMV, you can sort of tell which men or women behind the desk have a humility about them and are there to serve and which not so much. And that in society, humility is a remarkable virtue that needs to be championed. And I think of, um, for example, in the political realm, this remarkable book that a Yale professor of history, Timothy Snyder, wrote this year called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. And here's how he put it with respect to humility as this common virtue. He just simply, referring to our system of government, he says, the logic of the system the early Americans devised was to mitigate the consequences of our real imperfections not to celebrate our imaginary perfection. So in the realm even of public policy and politics, humility is a great virtue. We have systems of government that work best when they are aware of our imperfections and how to mitigate those rather than designing systems around the pure and perfect human heart. And so humility as a common grace virtue is a, is a great and helpful thing for, for civic society. But now what we're looking at in particular is Christian humility. That is, that humility that is focused on Christ himself. And so let's look at this passage and what John has to show us here. Four aspects about what Christian humility is, at least, from this passage. But we'll just look at four this morning. You may have caught the the basic context. John is... John the Baptist is nicknamed John the Baptist because he baptizes. And so in this context of baptizing with many people coming to him, Jesus' disciples also begin baptizing. And so there becomes this sort of question of, is that okay? And John's disciples come to him and say, this, other, this Jesus, has he's, his disciples are baptizing over here. And are you losing influence? What's happening here? And, and, and in response to that, John in verse 27 says something so remarkable and profound. He just simply says, I almost thought about this as, as the sermon title, but it's not quite so pithy. But it's, it's profound what he says in verse 27. 
A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And so here's the first thing. Christian humility understands, Christian humility is the, the understanding that every good thing you have or have ever had has been a gift from God. Every good thing you have now, just most of us, if you hold up your hand and you can see, just, just to do this for a second and look at all five fingers, just they move pretty nicely. Some of us might have a little bit of early arthritis. Who knows? But, but we've got hands that work. This is just an example of every part of our health that God gives us. Just think of your life. Christian humility begins with this basic premise because it comes from what John says. That every good thing you have or have ever had has been a gift from God. It's, it's, it, the Christian almost doesn't need persuading of this. And it's almost a mark that you've become a Christian if you start believing this. Because those out, outside of Christ are just tempted to look to themselves as the source for their strengths and abilities. I can't get through a sermon without some, sorry, some reference to The Simpsons, this ridiculous, hilarious TV show. But there's these scenes where occasionally the writers will write into the script a family prayer around the dinner table. And one prayer in particular where Homer, the dad, asks Bart, the bratty son, to say the prayer. And, and that night he says something like, Dear God, I don't know why we thank you for anything. Everything I've got I did for myself. Amen. Boom. And he gave voice to that which the human heart won't say out loud and yet believes in its darkest place. The Christian, though, just doesn't do that. The Christian just gets what John says here, that every good thing I've ever had and that I have now has been a gift from God. James chapter 1 puts it this way, one of the most powerful and profound verses Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. If there's anything good or true or beautiful in this world, Christian humility knows it comes from the Heavenly Father. It comes from Christ, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is Christian humility. It begins with this basic understanding. A second aspect of humility that John shows us Look now to the next verse, verse 28. He goes on to say, after he says a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given from, from heaven. And then he goes on to say, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now this seems almost too ridiculous to say out loud, and yet it's essential that we say this out loud and be glad for it. The second aspect of Christian humility is this. It's the simple announcement from your heart that you are not the Christ. Jesus is. You are not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. That's Christian humility. In the, the common grace understanding of it, the heart just simply says, I'm not God. God is God. But Christian humility makes it very personal and says, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. Jesus is. 
a simple announcement from the heart that you are not the Christ. Yes, Jesus is. And then, and then if you need any help to persuade your own heart about that, that you're not the Christ, this passage shows us so much about who this Jesus is that I know I cannot live up to. And your heart, when it's honest, knows you can't live up to either. And so it persuades us, if, if for a moment I was tempted that I'm the Messiah, that I'm Jesus, let me use the rest of this passage to scare me away from that ridiculous temptation. Because the Christ is the one, verse 31, who comes from above, sent from heaven into this world, not of the earth. Not merely born the normal way that you and I were born with a, a human father, a human mother, but from above, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Verse 32, bearing witness to what you have seen and heard in, 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 in the courts of heaven. Have you, have you spent an eternity in heaven that now you can come and declare to earth about the realities of God? No, of course not. So don't be tempted to think you're the Christ. You can't be the eternal, all-sufficient all, all, uh, one. Um, verse 34, he whom God has sent utters the very words of God. Do you consider that your words are the very words of God? Of course you don't. Christian humility knows I'm not the Christ. My words are fallible. And so Christian humility, again, begins with this very simple, profound understanding. If I've got anything good, it was given to me as a gift. But secondly, it's this simple announcement that the heart just says. And it says it out loud. I'm not the Christ. Jesus is. Here's the third aspect of humility in the very next verse, verse 29. John then goes on to say, the one who has the bride, he, he is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. All right, there's a lot going on in that verse, but with the rest of Scripture bringing to bear, we understand what's happening here. John is using that image that comes from the Old Testament and is made even more explicit in the New Testament, that the people of God, the church of God, are the bride. And that God is going to send the Messiah to join himself to them, to be the bridegroom. And so John, using that imagery, he says, I'm not the bridegroom. God didn't send me to marry the people of God, to empower and become the husband and the protector and the provider for the people of God. He sent Jesus to. And that thrills my heart. And so that's the third aspect of Christian humility that we see in this passage. Christian humility is that condition of heart that finds its deepest joy in Jesus being the bridegroom of the church. The condition of heart that finds its deepest joy in Jesus, his person and his work. Again, this is one of those aspects, just to state the obvious, that distinguishes common grace humility that God uses to construct healthy societies and healthy businesses and healthy departments of motor vehicles. Common grace humility to distinguish that from Christian humility. 
is that Christian humility, to state the obvious, is centered on Christ, the Christ, finding its deepest joy in the Christ, in Jesus, his person, and his work. So much else to humility in the scriptures, even in this passage, but we'll look at one more thing now. And then after this final aspect of what humility is, we'll take a a look at a a few examples of what humility looks like. But the final definition from this passage of what Christian humility is, going down to verse 36, the, the end of the passage, where John says, whoever believes in the Son... And by the way, I'm sorry, this is a weird, a very minor point, but um, there's, who really knows whether um, this, these verses, 31 through 30, 36, were the words of Jesus that now John, the gospel writer, is quoting, the words of John the Baptist that now John, the gospel writer, is quoting, or the inspired words that God gave John, the gospel writer, to write. I think it's the latter, and most translations indicate it's the latter, but so we'll just leave it at that. It doesn't, the truth of them remains the same depending on who originally delivered them. But it seems to me this is John, the gospel writer's explanation of all that's been happening in this passage. And so here he says in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Both John the Gospel writer and John the Baptist knew that to be true about themselves, that apart from the grace of Jesus, the grace of God, the wrath of God remained on them. That's this final aspect of Christian humility. And it certainly distinguishes it from common grace humility. Not every, not every wise and kind and humble neighbor and friend that you've ever met who doesn't know Christ, they may be far more humble in the way they live and serve their lives. But this Christian humility, because not every person, even as humble as they might be, will acknowledge from the heart what Christian humility does, which is this final thing. Apart from God's grace, God's wrath is on me. Apart from God's grace, God's wrath is on me. This is Christianity 101 in many respects. This is the first membership question in the Presbyterian tradition. It's really the first membership question in any Christian tradition is this this entrance exam question. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner, justly deserving his displeasure without hope? save in his sovereign mercy. The reason Christian churches have used, have used questions like that for 2,000 years is because of this passage and the rest of Scripture. Christian humility acknowledges that apart from grace, I'm not okay. I'm not even in a state of neutrality. I'm not even in a, in a place of potentially working myself out of this mess. Christian humility acknowledges that apart from grace, God's wrath is on me. Again, it's Christianity 101, the fall of man. Every Christian tradition sees this from Scripture, that we're born into this world with something twisted about us. We're turned in on ourselves. There's ways in which we are not the humble ones that we need to be. And it's obvious to us. 
And so God's wrath is upon us. But hopefully you've read all of John chapter 3 because just the passage right before ours today is, of course, one of these remarkably classic passages where we are told that Jesus didn't, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did not send Jesus to take a fallen people upon whom the wrath of God was sitting and say, I was sent to tell you there is no hope. I was sent to actually make it worse for you. No, 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 that's not the mission of Jesus. That's not the mission of the church. Rather, the mission of Jesus, the mission of the church is to say, here is this grace from God. Apart from it, we are under his wrath, all of us. But here is this grace. That's what it's all about. That's why we move forward with humility in this world, in this life, because we're here to offer the same grace that we ourselves have received. Well, that's four definitions from this passage about what Christian humility is. It's the understanding that every good thing you've ever had or ever have now is a gift from God. It's the simple announcement of the heart. I'm not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. It's the acknowledgement that, uh, that I will find my deepest joy in Jesus, his person and his work. And finally, it's the confession that apart from grace... His wrath will be upon us. Now, what does this look like when it's lived out in the real world? When just a few short minutes we see, we have for us this morning, example A, it was our Old Testament reading, the life of Hannah. She lived this remarkable life of humility. It was neither this being so proud of herself that she didn't remain hungry for more of God's righteousness, nor was it this, I'm just so, I'm nothing, I'm a nobody, I'm dismissive of myself, so I'll just curl up in a ball until I disappear. Rather, it was this hungering and thirsting for righteousness. She goes to God through the, in the temple and she says, give me a son. I will come to you. You'll be the source of every good gift, so I have to come to you for this son. And then when he gives her the son, he, she gives the son right back to the Lord with this remarkable prayer. And the prayer, of course, captures the heart of our sermon title this morning. It captures the heart of that profound summary, God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. So Hannah is an example. The second example, of course, is John the Baptist himself, his lifestyle, his manner. You notice perhaps a little aside in our John passage, where referring to John baptizing, it says in verse 24, this was all happening because John had not yet been put in prison. In the parallel passages, we learn that John's courage, humility, created in him this courage. This courage to represent the Christ. And Christ's grace and truth, and it, and it took him to prison. Because he had to courageously confront the powers that be. And you can read about that in the parallel passages. And so, both Hannah's life and John's life, I just, I just simply wanted to... to um, Make sure you see these as examples of real humility. Because the, one of the first things we have to do in, in, is just sweep away like bad definitions of humility. And if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's writings on this, they're so profound. C.S. Lewis, Lewis put it like this, that humility is not a beautiful woman, woman convincing herself she's ugly. 
that's this common misperception that, oh, humility means I should just curl up and be dismissive of everything that God has ever done for me and in me and through me, just dismiss it all, just die and curl up until I get blown away by the, by the wind. That, that's, no, no, no. Look at Hannah living this life with purpose, but it's purpose for God's glory and serving others. John the Baptist, the same. This is humility. This is the sort of humility that changes the world. Um, one of my most functional and, and enjoyable Christmas gifts yesterday was a coffee mug that had on it a, a wonderful verse from Philippians on the one side that I, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, but on the other side, uh, this powerful prayer that um, Reinhold Niebuhr first preached in 1934, and it's been seen by so many people as this summary, this great summary of wisdom and humility, and I, I agree, called the serenity prayer. Do you know this prayer? Um, God, give me, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living out the serenity prayer is what Hannah was doing, what John was doing, what we can do. This, this is both this humility, it's a humility that moves forward. And it's, it begins with this acknowledgement that one needs wisdom. One needs wisdom. Some of us, uh, not, 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 not me, but some of us moved here to New Haven to pursue higher education at Yale, University of New Haven, or Southern Connecticut State or somewhere. How many of you, if you moved here for higher education, moved here because your attitude was, I actually already know everything. I'm just going to this university so I, I can prove to everybody else how much I already know. Did anybody? I mean, you might meet once in a blue moon somebody with that attitude, but that's not why people pursue higher education. It's fundamentally a movement of humility if they stop and think about it. It's this acknowledgement, I don't have the wisdom I, know, I, have, I need right now. I don't have it. I don't have the wisdom I need right now. And so I come to you and I ask for it. This is Christian humility. This is what it looks like when we live it out. So, what is Christian humility? We've talked about that. What does it look like when it's lived out? We've all seen examples of that in the scriptures, but maybe in our own lives as well. Who do you think of in your field, in your calling, in your vocation, that are examples for you of of humility? Uh, whether you're a, a, a teacher or a plumber or a, a cab driver or a pastor, just in your own field, there are examples of those living out their vocation with humility and those maybe not so much. Well, in my vocation of being a pastor, I've, just, I've got too many examples to, to give uh, right now in, in, this, in the space of time, but I've just been marked by these men that, um, maybe maybe they lived by uh, one of the Moravian missionaries, Zinzendorf, but his his calling to pastors was preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. This is your calling. This is the pastor's model. Um, one of my mentors who just went to be with the Lord, R.C. Sproul, and he's a very boisterous person and maybe doesn't come across as the most humble man in the world, but he really was 
a humble servant of Christ and his church. But the, the image I'll always remember about him was in class, a student asked him one day, um, what's been the hardest thing for him to ever learn? And I heard him answer it the same way a couple different times. And I just, I just, I can just visualize him doing it. He would, he would just put his hands on his head, and he would say, "The hardest thing is to get the things I know to be true down here in the heart, because from the heart, then they are lived out in one's attitude and actions, and goes into your hands and feet." And Christianity is, by definition, the most wonderfully humbling of all truths. But the hardest thing in the world is, to, is that, you know, that eight-inch passage from the brain to the heart, you know, to, to bring this. We know this to be true, everything that we've already seen in this passage. I don't have a single good thing except from God. I know this to be true. Apart from God, I'm under his wrath. I know this to be true. But until that's in the heart, no one can tell, and you're not helping anybody, and you're certainly not helping your own self. And so he was an example of humility for me. And there's so many other examples. Um, uh, my own brother, my younger brother, who's a pastor, so many things I could describe about him, but he's actually been working on a book for 30 years on humility. And it's going to be pu- published this year in 2018, um, a book on Christian humility and how that can mark a whole corporate people, how we can move forward with God's grace, not being dismissive of all he's done, but not being overly impressed with ourselves. What does humility look like? Well, it looks like all of this. It looks like the serenity prayer. It looks like Hannah. It looks like John. It looks like James. It looks like hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It looks like the Beatitudes. It looks like Philippians 2. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And it looks like entering into your callings and your vocations with joy. That last bit, that last verse that I just referred to, Philippians 2, verse 3. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Here's the easiest way in the world to obey that, to count others more significant than yourself. Here's the easiest way in the world to obey that, that I will, I will, I will consider others more significant than me by... Considering myself to be worthless and useless, and I have no place in this world, and I don't deserve to be here in any way. I'm a useless person, and so if I give any credibility to anybody else at all in the slightest bit, then I'm counting them more significant than me. Okay, that's the easiest way in the world to obey that, and of course you're not obeying it at all. You're not obeying that verse at all. Remember what the rest of the scriptures say when we think about this, count others more significant than yourself, remember what the rest of the scriptures say about how significant you are. First, you have to begin with that. How significant are you? You're going to move into this new year with humility to acknowledge that the particular callings and vocations he's given to you, if you're a parent, your children, if you're a child, your parents, if you're a a, a sibling with siblings, whatever relationships God's given you in the workplace, as employer or employee, the works of art you're creating, the gardening you're doing, the teaching, the theologizing you're doing, all the particular vocations we've all been given. And by the way, that's a whole other sermon, of course, about all those vocations and those great classes. Go online to our website. You can find the classes on Christian vocation. 
All of us are theologians. All of us are gardeners. All of us are artists. We know this. The scriptures teach this. All these vocations you've been given, you and you alone are the ones given those by God of utter and wonderful significance in 2018. You are needed in his kingdom in all these dramatic ways. Own that. Embrace that. This is true. You are a son or daughter of God. Consider your significance as beyond what you see in the sky and then consider others. At least this much more significant than that. Listen to them. Listen more than you talk all these sorts of ways that you put that into practice. So don't go about humility by saying, here's how I'm going to consider others more significant than me. I'm the least important person in the world. Everything I do is just a disaster. And so I don't think that of other people, so I'm considering them, you know, no, no, you know what I'm getting at. This is just, no, embrace the good news of who God has called you to be. The significance of his calling for you. Move into this world with true humility. And in so doing, you're going to find yourself serving others. And you're going to be enjoying the significance of what God has called them to do. You're going to see it with new eyes. Well, we come now to this remarkable time. There's no worship service where we don't get to sort of wonderfully close the deal in this transaction that we have with Christ himself at his table. So let's pray now, and then we'll prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Father, we do thank you that Christ has come, full of grace and truth. We thank you for our fathers and mothers in the faith, women like Hannah, men like John, who showed us how to receive that grace and truth, how to move into their worlds with true humility. And so receive your blessing. We do know this is, this is this calling for us as individuals, as Christ Presbyterian Church, as every expression of our church, our mission, Anabino, church planting. We know that this is your calling for us, that we would move forward into this new year with you increasing and us decreasing, with you being seen by our hearts as the source of all grace, And with us humbling ourselves in your presence so that we can be in a place to receive that grace. Lord, this is our prayer at the end of this remarkable year that you've given us as we look forward to another remarkable year. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.